Our first scripture reading this morning is Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5 and verses 18 through 19. At that very time, there were some present who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He asked them, Do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what should I compare it? It is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in the garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. The word of the Lord. We're going to stay in the New Testament and take a look now at the epistle to the Romans, one of the authentic Pauline letters, probably written around 55, 56 CE, um, about 20 years or so after the death, and as Christians are uh, certain, the resurrection of Christ, we have one of the earliest documents in the New Testament. Listen now for what the Spirit is saying to you in the 8th chapter, beginning with the 28th verse. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified... He also glorified. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? You could add fire, disease, inflation, fill in the blank. As it is written, Paul continues, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word of the Lord. Please pray with me. 
O God, may the meditations of our hearts together this morning be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In light of just what's been happening in the last few days, including my day of texting and emailing and getting phone calls yesterday, but more importantly, what happened five days ago just down the road, let me ask you a question this morning. Wouldn't it be great if life worked out the way it should? If good was always rewarded with good, if the innocent did not have to suffer, would it be a better world if there was a little justice? I think about that when I'm driving quite a bit. But we know that there are students who recently have had to hide under desks to avoid being shot in their own schools, and we know, sadly, that there probably will be again. We know that people get away with things, especially driving. I have. You have. And not just driving. We know that sometimes the punishment doesn't fit the crime. We know that sometimes when it's absolutely no one's fault, there is something that ignites a spark, which ignites a fire, and an entire church burns to the ground with all of its history, all of those baptisms and worship services and laughing and crying and singing and praying and those stories, births and deaths, challenges, celebrations. It all burns. All gone. That's the world we live in. I used to hate it when my father said, Welcome to the real world. He's not the most sentimental guy. We know that. Here's something else we know. We know, Paul tells us, that all things work together for good for those who love God. All things not just the good things. Paul was writing to Christians in Rome who were, shock of all shocks, bickering and fighting with each other, a very diverse community in a very kind of the crossroads of the world, one of the great cities then and now of human civilization. Paul said, whatever's going on, however heated your feeling, however despairing you might be, or whether you think you're on top now, all things are working together for good. We know that. All things. And then it, Paul, as you might have noticed, introduces that word which sets us apart from all other Christians. They stay away from it like it's radioactive. Predestination. I knew I was going to say that. Get it? Right? Just digging into predestination is really something for another time, but let me just say that the first Presbyterian Protestant Reformed thinkers in the 16th century read Paul, saw that word and Paul's theological argument here and found it immensely comforting, and so do I, that every little thing I do or say or you do or say is not scripted. That's not what predestination means, is what we think now, unfortunately. 
but rather it's immensely comforting to know that God is God and we are not. That God is sovereign over everything, all things. Now because of that sovereignty, God has some splaining to do, as Ricky Ricardo used to say. But our tradition holds that God is sovereign over time. And God's love, which is what and who God is, transcends all boundaries between people, between eras, even the boundary of death. That God is God, and so you don't have to be, nor do I. That's good news, if you think about it, because we try to be every day. And every now and then, at least on Sunday morning, we're invited to lay our burdens down and let God do the heavy lifting. Now, last week, we had a conversation, so to speak, between our two biblical texts. We normally have two texts from Scripture as a centerpiece of our worship service. Today, I've got a big, another argument going on here, but it's not between the two scriptural texts so much as between the two quotes at the top or very beginning of your bulletin this morning. So take a look if you'd like. Uh, this is an argument uh, that's being carried forth by two of my heroes. But unlike last week when the texts were kind of going at each other uh, in the scripture, this morning Walter Brueggemann and Frederick Beekner are not arguing with each other. The fancy label I'd like to use or uh, share with you is that they are engaging in what's called a hortatory argument, a persuasive presentation. Uh, they're trying, each of them in their own way, to persuade you of the same thing. And what's cool about it, at least from my point of view, is that where one leaves off, the other picks up. So Frederick Beekner, recently deceased, amazing person, wrote one of his most famous quotes, and he had a lot. Most of them I've imposed on you over the years, but here's the most famous one. Beekner said, here is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Don't be afraid. Fires, violence, illness, abandonment, betrayal, viruses, politicians. It's all going to happen. We're not going to get rid of it, ever. And then Walter Brueggemann, one of our finest biblical scholars, focuses on the Old Testament, the Hebrew biblical tradition, takes the ball, in my mind, from Beekner and carries it the rest of the way down the field. Why shouldn't you and I be afraid, Brueggemann asks? Well, he answers us. Because there are buoyant powers of healing at work in the world that do not depend on us that we need not finance or keep functioning, and therefore that are not at our disposal. That is why when it comes down to it, you and I don't need to be afraid, don't need to be fearful, because as Brueggemann says so beautifully, there are buoyant powers of healing hard at work right now, even though you can't see them. It's hard to make plans and make budgets based on something you can't see. But that's what we do as Christian people. That's what separates us from the corporate world, from the business world, right? Now, I love me some Frederick Beekner, as many of you know, but here I'm partial to Brueggemann's words. And I especially like the word buoyant. And not only because I found myself becoming more and more buoyant over the years, 
Buoyant means apt or able to stay afloat <laughs> or rise to the top. Ah, we can make some Christian connections with that word. Rise to the top. Buoyant means also to be optimistic. Buoyant, you know, is something that looks like it's going to sink, but, and by all right should sink, but somehow rises. There are buoyant powers of healing at work in the world right now that don't depend on us. You know, when I'm working with churches in crisis, and in fact, lately, this is lately, I've been working with a lot of other congregations in crisis. It's sort of what I do when I'm not here. The great thing about uh, sort of mediating problems in other churches is I feel like a grandparent. You can say things and then leave. <laughs> you, know? you don't have to live with these people, so I can sort of be more forthcoming and kind of like grandparents. They give the kids back, right? Um, when I'm working with churches in crisis, what I find is that church folks or any human beings, really, when they get anxious about something, stressed about something, whether it's the future or money or some kind of crisis, like a fire, when they don't know what to do, they just start doing what they're good at, right? So the mechanical types, I'm not one of those, they go fix something, right? The number crunchers, they start crunching numbers. The neat people, I'm not one of them either, they start straightening up. The nurturing types always start cooking, right? The builders want to get going with building. The human resources people want to write out a job description and hire somebody right away. Let's get this thing fixed. We're all, in a way, especially when we're uncertain and afraid or devastated, a little bit like most surgeons I've come across over the years, they never met an illness that a knife couldn't fix, right? Now, you want a surgeon like that when you really need surgery, or because I know we have at least one in this church family, and he's an exception, some chiropractors I've come across, just adjust the spine, and you'll not only say goodbye to back pain, you'll also defeat the common cold, your bad breath and your bad clothing choices. Your poor penmanship after just a couple of chiropractic treatments will be a thing of the past because I've been told by chiropractors it's all in the spine. It's all in the central nervous system, right? We want to fix the problem, we human beings, don't we? Give us a problem. Let's get going to work. We want to get beyond it. And that's good, that Calvinist work ethic. But it is sort of indicative. It betrays a failure and an absence of trust in the buoyant powers of healing that are already at work in the world and do not depend on us. Or, as Paul put it, that all things are working for good, even now. Uncertainty, not knowing about what's going to happen, I think is the most insidious, malevolent sickness there is. I can tell you that because I am the father of somebody applying to college. Right? You don't know what's going to happen? You're stressed out? I'll, I'll say it in first person. I, when I was 17, I didn't know what was going to happen. I was stressed out. I was a jerk to pretty much everybody, especially my parents. Right? Because I was stressed out, didn't know, how to, didn't know what to do with it. Uncertainty, not knowing. 
is why I think the coronavirus pa pandemic was so devastating and corrosive. Look, we lost a lot of wonderful people on this planet. But everybody had to live with uncertainty in a way that most of us defend ourselves, at least most of us in this socioeconomic stratum, where most of us defend ourselves pretty well. Uncertainty and not knowing. It's not our job to fix the problem in the end. Healing, recovery, new life, restoration, those aren't in your job description or mine. Those are God's tasks and responsibilities. Our job is to partner, be guided, and be led, and to trust. And that's the hardest thing, to trust that the buoyant powers of healing are at work right now, even if we can't see them. We like to rely on ourselves, on our questions, on our thinking, on the tools and skills that we know to give our lives meaning and hope. But we can't do it. We find that out. We can't do it alone. We are not built that way. We keep trying. We're pretty sure that if we keep trying, it might work, even though it never does, right? And so while we put ourselves in God's position, so to speak, we inevitably and necessarily push God out. That's what they call sin, by the way. Right? What did the serpent say to Eve and Adam? You're not going to die. You'll be like God. And we've been trying to take God's job ever since. In his book, Shattered Dreams, the psychologist Larry Crabb wrote, Our job as spiritually forming Christians is to believe God when God promises to work both everything that happens in our lives and everything that happens in our souls for the good of people, and especially to the people who surrender themselves to however God wants to use them in this life. Did you hear that? Our job is to believe God, to trust God. That's all we have to do in the divine human relationship. That is a very reformed Protestant Presbyterian thing to say. God does all the heavy lifting and we just respond. Can you do that? Can I? Believe God, trust God when we are surrounded by troubles up to our necks in floods or fires. Through long years of slavery and imprisonment, Joseph, for example, we can pick somebody else, Nelson Mandela, and more importantly and more profoundly, some people that you know that I or we or the rest of us don't know. These rare people who are able to believe in God's promises even when they can't see how they're going to work out. In 1957, six years before I showed up, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. preached one of his most powerful, powerful sermons ever titled, Loving Your Enemies. Oh boy, let's not go there. Dr. King said a couple of amazing words. Love has within it a redemptive power. That's why Jesus says, love your enemies. Because if you hate your enemies, you have no way to redeem and to transform your enemies at all. But if you love your enemies, you will discover that at the very root of love 
is the power of redemption, or insert restoration, or wholeness, or healing. Let that truth sink in a bit. At the very root of love is the power of redemption. Or as Brueggemann says, there are buoyant powers of healing at work in the world that do not depend on us. Trust them. Put your weight down on them. Invest in them. And this isn't even stewardship season. It just kind of came out. Right? If you really trust, you're going to invest in what matters most. The buoyant powers of healing that are loose in the world already, even though we may not be able to detect them or understand them or certainly control them. Just the other day at lunch, I was discussing with a friend the kind of now old, kind of quaint little idea, but remember when those WWJD bracelets were big? What would Jesus do? Right? It's kind of a, I don't know, like a, a, if you had one, you were a cool Christian, at least in certain circles. Uh, and you would be saying, I'm going to ask myself, when, in every circumstance, WWJD, what would Jesus do? And um, especially if confronted with the dilemmas that we're facing today, not just devastation by fire or illness or whatever it might be, um, what would Jesus do? We wonder, well, some people, including some theologians, think it's a silly question because there's no way to know what Jesus would do. I, I agree with that part. I think we'd like to think that Jesus would do what we would do, or what we would want Jesus to do. We'd like to think that Jesus would vote the way we vote, right? Solve the problems in the world like we would, but Jesus, God's presence in our lives on earth, doesn't play that game. Our logic is never his logic, and so I don't think it's really a silly question to ask, what would Jesus do? I just think that most of us avoid the right answer. Um, later in the New Testament, uh, the writer of First Peter, probably not Peter, but named after Peter, gives us the key that I think is um, inherent in our biblical text this morning as well to how to do what Jesus would do and to live as he lived, make decisions as he would. The author of First Peter was writing to Christians who by that time, by the end of the first century, the beginning of the second were having to suffer for their faith and die for their faith. Early on, they kind of mingled in with other Jews, you know, but after a while they started, things got tense. Things got very polarized. There were, people took sides and they didn't like each other. Sound familiar? To this you were called, the author of 1 Peter writes, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example, you should follow in his steps. all the way to the injustice of the cross. And then, because you, like Jesus, trust somehow, without understanding those buoyant powers of healing that are work at work in the world, you follow Jesus beyond the cross into a better day, a better life. And I'm not just talking about biological life. I'm talking about the other side of divorce, right? The other side of job loss, the other side of a death of grieving of an illness which changes your way of living, your daily life, your standard and quality of living forever on the other side of those horrible things. Because we know that all things work for good for those who love God.
we say and think to ourselves, it's impossible, God says, all things are possible. We think so often, I'm alone. God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. The 1998 graduating class of Harvard University, you may have heard of it, it's a school in Boston. I like to call it the Stanford of the East. Um, heard in his commencement speech the unvarnished truth from the Reverend Dr. Peter Gomes, who's also recently passed away, an amazing person, longtime minister of the Harvard Chapel and to the university, author of several books on the Bible. Dr. Gomes took no prisoners that day in 1998 as he spoke to those graduates, that elite group of people who get into that incredible school, he said, you are going to be sent out here for good, and most of you aren't ready to go. I could say that as a benediction, by the way, every Sunday. The president is about to bid you into the fellowship of educated men and women and and here, Dr. Gomes paused and spoke each word slowly for emphasis. The fellowship of educated men and women who know just how dumb you are. The senior class of Harvard University, 1998, cheered in agreement. And worse than that, Dr. Gomes went on, the world and your parents in particular who invested so much in you being here are going to expect that you will be among the brightest and the best, but you know that you can no longer fool all the people even some of the time. By noontime today, he said, you will be out of here. By tomorrow, you'll be history. By Saturday, you will be toast. That's a fact, no exceptions, no extensions. Nevertheless, he concluded, the Reverend Dr. Peter Gomes went on, the future is God's gift to you, not your gift to yourself. God will not let you stumble or fall. God has not brought you this far to this place to abandon you or leave you here alone and afraid. The God of Israel, Gomes said to them, never stumbles, never sleeps, never goes on sabbatical, never takes a nap. Thus, my beloved and bewildered young graduates, do not be afraid. Amen. Please pray with me. Loving God, help us to trust that promise, to trust that the buoyant powers of healing which come from you are already bringing good and hope and restoration up from the depths of sorrow and devastation and despair, whether it's in our personal life or our congregation's life or other churches' lives or this country or this world. Help us to trust that the power of your Holy Spirit is alive and well and hard at work. And help us with eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts wide open out of love to look for signs of those buoyant powers of healing. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.